Welcome to the CEC report for the 3rd of August 2018. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is CEC leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Elisa. It's been a while. It has. Welcome yeah. back. Thank you. Uh, and on today's show, we have banking crisis to spark political upheaval. Be ready. And the clearest case that anti-Russia hysteria is built on disinformation. So firstly, banking crisis to spark political upheaval. Be ready. So we want to report back on, first of all, the by-elections that occurred last weekend across Australia. And I think that what I can say about um, not just these by-elections but other events that are going on that we'll talk about across the world is that we're in a pre-revolutionary period. Uh, so sometimes in that kind of a period you have a phenomenon where the population can be very um, apathetic, confused, afraid because they can see that a crisis is building. And then suddenly when the crisis really hits, as long as there's leadership on the scene, such as what we represent, putting real solutions forward, um, that people suddenly move and it gels and you get a dramatic shift in almost no time at all. So the vote that we received in the Perth by-election, which was where we put our focus, and our candidate was of course Barry Mason, who you've seen regularly on the show, uh, is that we received just over 1% of the vote, which is not a bad vote considering the circumstances, particularly given that the CEC has universally and continually had since our existence a media, a complete media blackout. But also you had a short campaign, you had a horse race of 15 candidates. We'd never run there before. It's an inner city electorate. And one of the most important points, in fact, is that most, a lot of people we came across because we were on the ground there for a few weeks ahead of the election, most people, many people, didn't know there was even an election on. Um, and even if people noticed in the media coverage on the news at night and so forth, there wasn't much said about the Perth by-election. Yeah. You heard about Longman, you heard about Tasmania, yeah. not much about Perth. And of course, the main factor in Perth one of the main and most interesting factors was our presence on the ground there and our campaign. Yeah, we tried very hard, Elisa, to get out and do a lot of one-on-one -on -one organising, but look, the, the weather was terrible. Mm. We had teams of people, you know, dozens of people ready to go out and, of course, we tried to do as much door knocking as possible. And when we did do that door knocking and get to speak to the population, our vote to totals were much higher, mm -hmm. over the 2.5% mark. Yeah. So it was not for the want of trying, it mm -hmm. was just physically impossible, in fact, yeah. in and a the, very short campaign. And the thing about um, what we were doing out there in recruiting people is much, much more than just getting people to vote because that's not really, ticking a well, ballot paper is not the critical thing in changing history. Well, it's one of the stunning things about this election was that no one was campaigning. Mm -hmm. There was no one campaigning except us. We were out in the street every day with table sites, Barry was out there meeting the people, we were door knocking, we were going to business to businesses, we were doing all sorts of things. Yeah. But no, no, well, no one else went around. And that's why you had nearly 50% that either didn't vote or voted informal. And the 36.5% who didn't vote was a record, in fact. Mm. Um, but I want to cite one of the responses that we heard about, and you can bet that there's many, many others that responded this way. This was uh, Jerry Roberts. He's a WA Labor Party member. And he wrote an article on the 30th of July, headlined, The Weirdest By-Election of Them All, which was on the, web, uh, the blog site 
of John Menadju, who's the former Secretary of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. He wrote that 35% of people voted for candidates grouped in the category others, i.e. not major parties, which is itself very interesting. And he said among the others was the most interesting face on the ballot paper, an excellent candidate by the name of Barry Mason, standing for the Citizens Electoral Council on the single issue of breaking up the banks. Barry promoted the banking separation bill introduced in the last week of the parliamentary sitting by Bob Catter and seconded by Andrew Wilkie. I'm spending the parliamentary break writing to all members of the Labor Party's Economics Committee, urging them to do likewise and support Bob's bill. Mm. And then he cited one response he'd already received from Labor MP Doug Cameron. Well, he cited a few, but Doug Cameron's was interesting because he said, we will await the report of the Royal Commission. <laughs> And Roberts responded, I hardly think that is good enough for the party of Curtin and Chifley. The question for the ALP is whether it is prepared to put substance under its motherhood statements of concern for the working and middle classes. And obviously he sees that in action as a contrast to us and was impressed by what we did on the ground, uh, right. that we're backing this up with real policy and real action. And I'll also note, just talking about Glass-Steagall, and you can explain that a bit more for new viewers, Craig, um, that Rebecca Sharkey was re-elected as well in South Australia. And uh, that's really critical because she was one of in the... In a landslide, I might add, against yeah, the Liberal Party's candidate, Downer. Georgina Downer. Yeah. Um, so that's very good news. And she had been thinking about seconding the uh, Glass-Steagall legislation, and she's a firm supporter of it. So that's very good news. Um, but when you think about what we've achieved with our Glass-Steagall campaign, you know, what we've done, we don't even have a member in Parliament, and yet we've been able to bring this to the floor of Parliament, and it's growing with enormous support, and especially as we'll talk about um, in the next segment, with the oncoming uh, housing crisis and banking crisis in Australia, it's really going to take off. Yeah, that's right, Lisa. Mm. So we'll be right back to keep talking about that after this quick break. Welcome back to the CEC report where we're discussing how the oncoming banking and housing crisis is going to spark a political upheaval and we have to be ready for that uh, by preparing the population with the ideas and the solutions that are necessary that they can lobby their MPs about. Now just on the housing bubble front, um, there was new CoreLogic data out this week showing the latest downward, uh, sorry, the um, largest downward property slide in six years. Home prices were down 5.4% in Sydney year on year, um, but if you just take family homes alone, the slide was 7%, mm -hmm. and in the category of the most expensive houses was a collapse of 8%, and Melbourne's generally following that trend a bit further behind. Um, reportedly, there's a new surge of uh, new construction ready to come on the market in Sydney. Uh, other warnings included from Lindsay David, the founder of LF Economics, who tweeted, well, there goes the Sydney Pyramid Ponzi Finance real estate investor scheme. Banks primarily used unrealised capital gains from one home as collateral against the purchase of another home and both or more assets are falling in sync. So you've got you know, big bubbles that are going to come down as a result of the housing price coming down. You had economist Philip Seuss who reported that Sydney house prices have fallen 8.3% since their peak in 2017 and are heading for a total of 12% uh, downward motion by the year, with the end of the year. Mm. Then Endeavour Equity Strategy 
had put out a detailed report warning that Sydney and Melbourne house prices could fall by 15 to 20 percent. Now they cast it as a repeat of the late 1980s and 1990s but that's completely out of context because that doesn't include the impact of the GFC and the mm. fact that our banks are more bankrupt We've got a higher debt, everything's worse than at that time right now. So that is an underestimate. They also said that 40% of home loans are non-prime, which have default rates three to five times higher in a downturn. And we know it's at least double that. About 80% of loans are the dodgiest possible. Now, Craig, the Royal Commission is resuming on Monday the 6th of August. Yep. That's this Monday. Then Parliament resumes on the 18th of August. Yes. What should people be doing? Well, we have a bill in the Parliament that's been introduced by Bob Catter to separate the banks. It's a Glass-Steagall bill for Australia, Elisa. Now, the point is the banks have proven themselves to be what they are. They're out for themselves, out for big profits, breaking the rules, not bending them, manipulating and the, the regulators. Right, and therefore people are now at risk because of their speculative activity. So what this bill does, it says, no, we need to have a sane, stable, protected commercial banking system, boring banking as we can, you know, we call it, where you have a banking system that protects people from deposits, that they are allowed to, uh, you know, uh, they're protected from any sort of speculation whatsoever. So all the speculative stuff that the banking system's got in it now is broken away from this boring commercial banking. So all your, re your, your merchant banking, your uh, investment banking, stockbroking houses, insurance companies and all of that stuff, all the so-called vertical integration that's happened in the last 30 years, we've seen all this stuff piled into the banking structure, is stripped wow. away. Now, this means that we can survive a global financial crisis again. The downturn that's coming is demonstrated in the housing market by basically saying, no, we're not going to support speculative activity anymore. We'll have a strong banking system which will support the real physical economy and the rest of it, well, you can just go to hell. Mm. It's a political decision, Lisa. It's not a banking decision. It's not an economic decision. It's a political decision. And that's why, as a political party, the CEC's campaigning on this policy and that's why we urge our viewers to get involved. Mm. How do they get involved? Well, politicians listen to constituents in their area. If the constituents get active and write letters, or go and see their members of parliament and say, listen, this is my will. This is what I want you to do. Now, initially they might brush you off, but 20, 30, 50 people do that. Then they start to realise mm. that they can't sit on their asses. They can't do nothing. because And many of them, look, they're not like that. And many of them are concerned, they do, mm. but they don't know what to do because they believe the party line. Mm -hmm. And the party line is this pathetic aspect of what you see we mentioned before. I oh, will wait until the Royal Commission's, mm -hmm. you know, what Doug Cameron said, right? This is sort of rubbish that's causing the problems. Mm. And you know, this is why it's very important that we put a stick up the right part of their anatomy <laughs> in order to get these politicians mm. moving and people are the stick. And the government's very worried about it because the um, Treasury just put another report to the Royal Commission in which they basically said, oh, there's not really sufficient evidence that vertical integration is a problem and just the awareness of it alone is enough. We don't need structural separation. So we've got to really keep hammering on this because they are worried. We've got the bankers on the run. Alyssa, this, some of these concepts are quite difficult for people to understand, but we do encourage people to get a copy of our Australian Alert Service mm. because, look, we only cover a fraction of what's what, on this program about yeah. what's in here, and it's all backed up. Yep, so we don't expect people to take us on faith. Check it out themselves. The details are all there. Now, we'll be right back after this break to talk about one of the most stunning cases of anti-Russia disinformation.
welcome back to the CEC report. The clearest case that anti-Russia hysteria is built on disinformation. Fake now, news. Yeah. <laughs> now, just from what we were talking about, Craig, um, I also wanted to mention that in the Australian Alert Service this week is a very important article on the latest BRICS forum, which occurred in South Africa on 25 to 27th July. And it's really important in the context of what we were discussing because the move towards setting up a new international financial architecture is well on the way. The BRICS are recruiting other countries where they have a BRICS Plus program mm -hmm. to envelop other countries in their trade and investment formats to get the world economy going. But to stop this new economic architecture um, is the mission of the Anglo-American financial establishment, the City of London, Wall Street bankers and so forth. And the demonisation of Russia and China is a big part of that. And that continued here in Australia this week with a program on Channel 7's Sunday night program, this Sunday just gone, called Dirty Money. Now, the show accused Putin of being the richest man in the world and of parking some of his corrupt gains in Australian banks and companies, of course, being completely unregulated. You won't yeah. be surprised about that. Um, but the story hinges on one man by the name of Bill Browder, and he was named by Putin in the Putin-Trump uh, press conference that occurred at their meeting in Helsinki as someone the Russians would like to question in exchange for US officials coming to Russia to question the 12 Russians indicted for interfering in the US election, so-called. Um, so that's who Browder is. Now, he's an American originally, but now a British citizen. He ran a hedge fund in Russia called Hermitage Capital, which is backed by HSBC, a notorious bank for laundering money for drug cartels and terrorist organisations. So we're expected to believe him and his claims, which is that in 2007, he says Russian officials re-registered his companies under other names and conducted a $230 million tax ripoff. So they stole from the Russian government. Browder's accountant, a man called Sergei Magnitsky, who discovered this, was then imprisoned and tortured and killed. Browder's company was blamed for stealing the $230 million. Now I'll show you this first clip, which is how Sunday night's show presented his story, pretty much as I've just said it. Bill Browder had fled to London, but he says corrupt officials connected to the Kremlin were about to pull off the biggest tax fraud in Russian history using his name. Some of that money would eventually make its way to Australia. It's Christmas Eve 2007. Two petty criminals arrive at Moscow tax office number 28 with stolen documents, falsely claiming they own three of Bill Browder's Russian companies. They meet the corrupt head of the department, ask for a $230 million tax refund and are swiftly given the money. It was the largest tax refund request in the history of Russia and it was approved and paid out the next day. No questions asked. Within 24 hours, they get a check for $230 million. That's right. Not a bad Christmas present? On Christmas Eve. From his London hideaway, Browder hires a gutsy young Russian lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky to find out how they pulled off the monumental fraud and what happened to the money. 
he wasn't intimidated by, by the corruption, and he took it on, and he grabbed it with both hands. But within a few months, Sergei Magnitsky himself was arrested and thrown in jail. They wanted to get him to sign a false confession to say that he stole the $230 million, and he did so on my instruction. They totally underestimated Sergei Magnitsky. This was a father and a husband, you know, he's mid-30s, who had astounding promise. He must have been under extreme pressure to buckle. He was under extreme pressure and it got worse. His health completely broke down. He went into a terrible downward spiral. Instead of putting him in the emergency room, they put him in an isolation cell. They chained him to a bed, and eight riot guards with rubber batons beat him to death. He was 37 years old. He left a wife and two children. Heartbroken but resolute, Bill Browder is determined to find out what happened to his friend. So that's Browder's side of the story, but there is another side to the story, and it's very interesting because it's been told by a filmmaker called Andrei Nekrasov, and he was actually hired by William Browder to tell the story, as you know, the Sunday Night Show just told it. But, and he's an anti-Putin filmmaker, he's known for that, so that's why Browder chose him. However, in the course of doing the documentary, he discovered Browder's lies when he started to look at some of Browder's documentation and read the Russian and go back to the original sources. Uh, he realised what was going on and he decided to turn his documentary into an expose of this. Now his expose is called The Magnitsky Act Behind the Scenes and unfortunately we can't show you any clips from that due to aggressive legal action uh, by Browder. It's been black banned and there's only been a handful of screenings worldwide. But Browder is basically caught out in lies and he ends up threatening the filmmaker on camera that his reputation will be ruined if he proceeds with the documentary. Now what we can show though are these couple of clips publicly available on YouTube. The first one here shows Browder emphasising Magnitsky's prisoner ordeal and death and the effect it had on him. Well, we were, we were absolutely convinced this was a rogue operation and Sergei and I put together um, criminal complaints to all the different law enforcement agencies in Russia. Um, I went to the press and then Sergei testified against the police officers who did the raid at the Russian Investigative Committee, which is the equivalent of the FBI. And we waited for the good guys to get the bad guys. And we discovered shortly after that that there are no good guys in the Putin regime in Russia. Instead of arresting the bad guys, they went and arrested Sergei Magnitsky on November 24, 2008. They put him in pretrial detention, and then they began to torture him to get him to withdraw his testimony. They put him in cells with 14 inmates and eight beds and left lights on 24 hours a day to impose sleep deprivation. They put him in cells with no heat and no window panes in December in Moscow. Um, uh, he nearly froze to death. They put him in cells with no toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up. They would move him from cell to cell to cell in the middle of the night. And they were doing all of this to try to get him to withdraw his, his testimony against the police officers and to get him to sign a false confession to say that he stole the $230 million and he did so at my instruction. Now, I don't know how I would have behaved under these circumstances. And if you had asked Sergei in advance, he probably couldn't have told you how he would have behaved. But when he was faced with the idea of, of um, bearing false witness and perjuring himself, for him, the moral 
pain of doing that was greater than the physical pain he was subjected to, and he refused. And they were surprised because nobody refused. Everybody always buckles in these situations, but Sergei didn't buckle. I got the news on the 17th of November in the morning, and it was the most heartbreaking, traumatic, life-changing news I could have ever gotten. Sergei Magnitsky was killed because he was my lawyer. He was 37 years old. He left a wife and two children. And for me, I just could not stand by and let that happen. Now, those beatings of Magnitsky were never proven, and even Browder later admitted that on tape. Uh, Magnitsky's mother said at worst the prison was negligent and that her son died from a disease. But compare that last clip to this one, which is a publicly available tape of a deposition of Browder, where they're talking about the period of Magnitsky's imprisonment. Did you consult with uh, Mr. Magnitsky's lawyers from time to time? No. Somebody on your team do that? Possibly, I don't know. People at Firestone Duncan would have, right? Surely. Did you have Brown Rudnick representing you at the time? No. So Firestone Duncan was your lawyers at the time? Not the only ones, we had other lawyers. So did anybody coordinate on your behalf with Firestone Duncan about the, de uh, the defense of Mr. Magnitsky? I don't know. You don't know? I don't remember. You were being criminally prosecuted along with Mr. Magnitsky at that time. You didn't pay attention? I don't know. I don't remember. Did you ever have somebody suggest to Mr. Magnitsky that he should take responsibility for the Saturn and Dahlia Step tax returns? I don't remember. So here he says he had no contact with Magnitsky's lawyers and can't remember anything about this supposedly extraordinary man of principle. But the point is he doesn't want to contradict his story, which is a web of lies. Now there's also video footage in the film of a US Homeland Security official interviewed about the US investigation into Browder's claims, which led to the Congress passing the quote-unquote Magnitsky Act, which is a law which sanctions Russian officials, which is why this is important. And the officials admit, the US officials actually admit looking into this story, that they didn't check Browder's claims, interviewed no witnesses, and relied solely on Browder's own documentation, which they did not cross-check with any other sources or authenticate the documents. And the US passed a law based on this. Now, yeah. the White House said today that Russia is still trying to influence their elections and that they're acting against it. But look at their standards of proof. So, Craig, why is it important that we expose the, this kind of disinformation? Because, look, the attack is on Russia and China as leaders of the BRICS countries. You have a new paradigm here, Elisa, which is overturning everything of the old order of the current Anglo-American system. So they've got to, they're trying to discredit Russia and China in the eyes of the people by using buckets of fake news. This is all fake news. And here you had Channel 7 come out and literally pile buckets of fake news onto the Australian population. Mm. They didn't check. That's rubbish journalism. They didn't oh, check yeah. any of their facts, right? It was so terrible. So when you look at the, what's behind this, this the, the, the fact is you've got Russia and China leading the world in a new paradigm of economic development. And people should really get a copy or try and get uh, access to this um, Yeah, you can film. get, you can 
email the film's producer, Torstein Grude, at torstein at pariah.no. We'll put that up on the screen. Um, that's really worth watching in its entirety. You can also read more in the alert service because, unfortunately, we've run out of time on today's yeah. show. But thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Craig. Thanks, Lisa. We'll see you next week. Thank you.